Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we'll talk about a book I spotted among a stack at the corner bookshop. (laughs) Just kidding, those don't exist where I live, at least not on the corners near me. But the book was in a stack, just resting there, and something about it called to me. The imprint of Melville House, the publisher, that helped. The title, The Scapegoat, Stark, and a subject with which I'm familiar. But there was one thing above all, and that was the author's name. I hadn't heard it before, but I could see it was Greek. This was going to be a book set in Greece, I thought. And I can't explain why, but something about novels set in Greece just need to be read by me. The Magus by John Fowles, Pascali's Island by Barry Unsworth, Zorba the Greek, which actually dies after a certain number of pages, but many pages before the end of the book. Overall, though, Greece. So I picked this latest one up, and I'm glad I did. The Scapegoat by Sophia Nicolaidou, Translated by Karen Emmerich, published in 2015. Bring it. Some of you may have heard about the Polk Awards for Journalism. Some of you may have noticed it in the press recently, because it was won by the cartoonist Gary Trudeau, who said a few daft things about Charlie Hebdo and freedom of speech. Yeah, I'll get into it. He was wrong. Satire is not a tool that can only be used by the oppressed against the oppressor, however one defines those terms. In fact, satire can be used by anyone and visited upon anyone at any time. You don't need to check the color of a balloon before you let the air out. In any case, the scapegoat brings the reader to George Polk, after whom the award is named. Polk was a strident, confident, boisterous American journalist from the middle of the century, who never let a government, a threat, a lie, get in the way of his story, right up to the point where it killed him, which is where we meet Polk at the beginning of the novel. The boatman had seen dead men during the war, had buried bodies with his own hands, but he'd never seen a drowned man. The corpse floated serenely, the waves a caress, the clothes untouched, no trace of blood a film of cuttlefish over the dead man's eyes. The cuttlefish. Ouch. Nice. The scapegoat is told from the points of view of numerous characters. Polk is one of them. His interpreter is another. Polk's wife, the police officer investigating the crime, a secret service operative. High, low, central, peripheral. Each one of these characters gets a voice, speaks in first person and the reader hears from some of them several times. This is one part of the novel, and it takes place in 1948, the year of the murder, and the aftermath, when Greece, recently liberated from the Second World War, is now suffering an internecine struggle between the American-backed government and the communist rebels, which is precisely what Polk was getting at. This was a struggle in which there were no innocent parties, in which none of the parties was trying to be innocent. On May 3, 1948, a total of 152 communists who'd been condemned to death were executed, a fact that seemed entirely logical to the side doing the killings. 
Some whispered that the executions were in retaliation for the assassination of Ladas, the Minister of Justice, by the Organization for the Protection of the People's Struggle. Ladas had been the one who decided to revoke the citizenship of communists en masse. He was also the one who signed orders of execution. But the communists, too, killed indiscriminately. The two sides competed in harshness and barbarism. They burned people alive, decapitated corpses, stoned and bludgeoned and raped. There was no end to the evil. Some executed, and others executed the executioners. Heroes became traitors and traitors' heroes, depending on who was speaking. No one escaped. The traps had been set. People were condemned according to what they believed, not what they had done. Of course, everyone said it was a sad state of affairs, yet the killing continued apace. In the end, political neutrality became a dangerous position. The country was ruled by paroxysms of fanaticism and intolerance. The other part of the story takes place in the more or less present time, 2010 and 11, and it revolves around Minas, a bright but stubborn teenager on the verge of graduating high school. Instead of sitting for the Pan-Hellenic exams, think of the inanity of the SATs and the stupidity that goes into defending them as a means of assessing intelligence, instead of sitting for these exams, Minas is given, by a wonderfully crusty teacher named Suk, an assignment. The assignment is to write the history of the murder of the American journalist George Polk, whose body was discovered just off the coast of Thessaloniki, where Minas now lives. Only the teacher, Suk, doesn't call it the Polk case. He calls it the Manolis Grease case, after Polk's interpreter, a journalist in his own right who was convicted of murdering Polk. Yes, that's right. Convicted of murdering Polk, interpreter, interpreter, journalism, journalism, time travel, boom, yes, nice, Nikolaidu. Now the story's got your attention. We learn about Manolis Greece and his unlucky origins from his mother, Kyria Maria, as she recounts her childhood. We're refugees. What did we know of Greece? We used to hear the name in church, for the good of Greece, Father Evgenios would chant. We would cross ourselves three times. I was born in Trapezonta, in a house by the sea. My hair would curl from the salt in the air. I'd wash it and iron it on the table to make it straight. I was a girl then, didn't fear God, only my father. I was in love with the salter in our district, a polite boy. His voice trembled when he sang the Good Friday Lament. My sweet springtide, he sang with tears in his eyes, and the mothers would cry, and we cried too, the girls who'd covered the bier of Christ with flowers that morning. From the twisted starting point of being a refugee in his own ancestral homeland, Manolis works his way to a position of relative security, taking care all the while of his sisters and mother. But the rewards of his discipline do not outlast his bad luck which culminates in the day he decides to interpret for the nosy and guileless investigative journalist George Polk. It's made clear, early in the story, that Manolis is not guilty of the murder of the journalist, is nowhere close to having murdered him. So the question quickly becomes how the blame was laid on him. 
The first answer comes courtesy of the ridiculous sophomoric reasoning furnished by the world of international diplomacy and geopolitics. The American government, which was backing the Greek government at the time against communist rebels, was perceived to have demanded immediate justice, in quotation marks, for the murder of Polk. The reasoning goes like this. Don't care who you find, just make a charge and make it stick. Thus, it was suggested to Manolis that a confession, even a false confession, even a confession coerced through torture, would be a service, a patriotic deed in this time of strife and discord. When they brought Grise before the district attorney to sign his confession, he couldn't even hold a pen. He kept sliding down on the chair. A policeman wrapped his hand around Grise's fingers and helped with a signature to speed things along. In that policeman's opinion, the American marshals, the Greek military officers, the government ministers, and the guys from security all owed a moment of silence to the young man who had withstood all he'd withstood for so many days and had even dared to raise his voice. He'd spoken back to the minister of justice who had made a special trip up from Athens in a hurry, always in a hurry, to close the case, telling Greece that if he would just confess, he would be offering the greatest of services to the government. The country would honor and respect him his name would go down in history as one of the great benefactors of the nation. Having said that, we get an account from an American aide later in the book that makes it clear that he does not approve of the pressure tactics and found the target, a lowly interpreter, an unlikely suspect. Even later in the story, we get an especially spicy account from a man who claims to have been formerly attached to the British Foreign Office, who has, as they say, means, motive, and opportunity to commit a crime, and all but dares the reader to pin the murder on him. The geopolitics, then, are more complex than they appear. Through it all, Manolis remains the image of a human martyr. He has the traits of the sufferer, but also the fallibility of a person who can only tolerate so much pressure before he breaks. We get the sense he will outlast his ordeal, but not necessarily survive it. So what about Minas, the boy who is researching the story in present-day Greece? How does he do with the story he's researching and with his own story? Unlike the twisty tale that is woven around the murder of George Polk, Minas's path is fairly straightforward and, so long as it sticks to the topic of his research, his mother's anxieties over it, his father's tacit support for it, it makes for a good match to the inherently rich historical material. That's less the case when the net is cast wider and we're reading about Minas's school and love life. There's an air of inevitability to the subplots. For example, his dislike for, and therefore infatuation with, a girl in his class who is the opposite of him in every respect, and therefore they must hook up because getting on another person's nerve is the prelude to sex. That's fine, but next to the historical sections of the book, including the bits of contemporary history, like the influence of the Greek debt crisis on daily life, which are just so damn excellent, it proves that when the swerves of history are pitted against the tropes of fiction, history wins. What Minas's story does bring to the surface is the notion that investigation, journalistic or historical, can be seen as a necessarily romantic pursuit. Where Polk is described as dashing, a daredevil, glamorous, and married to a beautiful woman, Minas pursues his work at least in part to impress a girl, 
are also motivated by notions of finding truth, upsetting order, investigating the concept of objectivity, all the ideas that burn at the center of an adolescent's romantic heart. And there is a romantic thrill to great journalism when unabashed reporters search for the hearts of their stories. When I was thinking about this, I remembered specifically the collection in The Best of Granta Reportage. There's Martha Gellhorn, Ian Jack, John le Carré, James Fenton. The thrill I got from reading those reports was similar to the thrill of reading the reported sections of Nikolai Yidu's novel, the tales told in first person, the descriptions of Minas chasing down these stories. It's principally for this reason, for this excitement, that I'm curious to see what the author produces next. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Latecomers by Anita Bruckner. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks goes to Tas Melas for help on the pronunciation of Nikolaidu. Thanks for joining us. To Hakan Ozgan for the music. To Natalie Matheson for playing the part of Bernadette. Should I say third? Three? May three. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. Aluminium. And as always, go Jays. <laughs> <laughs>